All right. So we're going to start a short mini-series. You like mini-series? What is the plural of a mini-series? Still a mini-series. Okay. It's a short one, uh, three weeks or so before we begin Lent. And uh, something that the council and staff did last fall, late fall, was a uh, weekend conference called Churches That Heal. We did it here. It was a video conference. And it's, it's about becoming a place, be a church, that when people walk in the door, rather than experiencing shame and guilt and finger pointing, that they would actually experience healing, um, emotional healing, physical healing, spiritual healing, that God would be able to do a work in them through the people in the community, not just the pastors and not just the council. And that's one of the, one of the big divides, I think, that we've made in our country nowadays is that the work of the church is the pastor's. But it's never ever meant to been was ever meant to be that way. It's always been the work of the church is the church. You are the church, and the pastors are just leaders and 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 prayers and people who are listening for what God's doing and helping us kind of being out there on the edge of what God is doing and leading us further in. So we want to be a church. This is the vision that Heidi and I have, and the council has that this place, this space, would be a safe, kind, loving space where people can come from all sorts of places and find healing in their hearts and in their souls. So we're going to do a three-week series on just what does it take to be a church that heals? What does it take from you and from me to be a place where people who are in various stages of brokenness can come in and experience God's healing in this space? All right? That's what our series is about. I'm going to start, though, by talking about skiing, of all things. Uh, I got to go skiing this last week, and many of you probably don't know this, but I've been skiing since I was about 13 years old. I grew up in Alaska, so there's not much else to do in the wintertime, right? <laughs> and you just walk in the driveway and you're skiing, because uh, that's just the way it works. But downhill skiing is totally different, and I love downhill skiing. Does anybody else here like downhill skiing? All right, a few of you. Um, it is so much fun. It's, it's like total loss of control, and you just shoot down the mountain. There's a movie in the 80s, Better Off Dead, where they describe how to ski. And he says, what you do is you stand at the top of the mountain, you point your skis down, and go. And if something gets in your way, turn. That's it. That's all it takes. So I got to go skiing. It took Amelia. The two of us went, and we had a great time. It was, it was icy and cold, um, but we're skiing along, and, and Amelia is a newer skier. She's only been skiing about four times now, I think, four, five times now. So she's a newer skier. Her, her method of skiing is just that. Point your skis downhill. If something gets in your way, turn. She wants to go as fast as she possibly can. So she takes these wide routes that go like this, so she could just kind of tuck and go as fast as she can. And I, being, you know, uh, uh, having skied since I was 14 with a 20-year break in the middle. Um, I missed that part, but the 20-year break in the middle. I, I like to try to do a little more technical skiing, you know, where you have to cut and swoosh and turn really quickly. And so I like to go down the sections with moguls, which are big snow bumps that you have to carve around. And so Amelia would go down this angle and make a big, uh, what do you call it, a big C, and I would go down straight down the middle of it. And she would meet me at the bottom. And so she decided she's going to take my phone and videotape me coming down this section. And I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. I've been skiing a long time. It's going to look really good. I'm going to look, I'm going to look really good. And I get down there, and then she hands me the phone, and we're going up the ski lift, and I'm watching, and I'm like, who's this guy? Who did, who did you record is what I'm thinking. I mean, this looks terrible. I mean, it looked like this. Right, you know, and in my mind, I thought I was looking like this, right? I thought I was like, this is an Olympic gold medal run and the slalom. This is what I thought I looked like. But I look like, and I was just like, 
I don't ever want to look at this video again. I just look terrible. I, what, how long have I been skiing? It's got to be the 20-year break because this looks so bad. Then the next day, I sat down at home and I looked at this video again. And I watched it and I thought, well, is, that guy's almost 50. Almost. He's got a year and a few days. And he's almost 50. And he skis twice a year. And he is going down a pretty technical run. And, and you know, he doesn't look so bad. Oh, it's, it's all right. He's not that clumsy. Oh, it is me. Okay. You know, I, I had this idea in my head of what I would look like skiing down the run. I thought I was going to be this Olympic gold medalist. And then instead, I just kind of an average, nearly 50-year-old guy who's been skiing most of his life. And that's okay. What I realized in the midst of that was that I struggle myself to interpret the stories of my life, to interpret myself, how I look, how I act, who I am. I struggle with knowing what's reality and what's not reality, what's fair and what's not fair, how good I should be at something or how bad I should be at something. It's hard for me to know. And very often when I see my own story or hear my own story, look at my own life, I interpret it through these lenses of, of brokenness and shame. What I, what I do is I look and I have the worst possible picture of myself sometimes. You guys ever done that? You ever experienced anything like that? Nobody else here has this way of kind of looking at life from the negative. You know, you do something and then you tell yourself the worst possible story about it. You might make a small mistake of some sort and then boom, you're just telling yourself what an awful person you are. Uh, you give something uh, your very best shot and it's just not quite good enough and suddenly you're like, man, I stink. You do something really great, really great. You do something really kind. You get a Christmas gift just right for somebody, whatever it happens to be, but then you start to critique it later and you look at its flaws or you check out your outfit each day in the mirror to make sure it's right and it matches and coordinates. Does it measure up? Do I need to change? You look at your bank account. Is it enough? Yeah, it's enough, but is it really enough? You totally overblow the goodness or the badness of your lives. We all do this in one way or another at one point in our lives or another. It may not be a consistent daily struggle for you, but it is something that happens to all of us. And that's because it's a difficult, difficult challenge to have a fair assessment of yourself, of your life, of who you are, of how you've done from birth to death, we, we look over all of it and we see the good and the bad and the ugly and we have a hard time really giving ourselves the grace to just be. So I want to give you a quick gift and this is, I'm going I'm to say it to you and then I want to invite you to say it with me, okay? I'll say, I'll say it how I want you to say it. <laughs> I am not as good as my best moment and I am not as bad as my worst. Okay, this is the gift I'm giving you. You are not as good as your best moment, but you're also not as bad as your worst. So let's say that together, the bad put I. You know, it's just like that self-affirmation. We're looking ourselves in the mirror. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like you. Um, I'm good. I am not as good as my best day, and I am not as bad as my worst. Let's say it one more time so you can actually say it with conviction, okay? Conviction. I am not as good as my best day, and I am not as bad as my worst. Congratulations. Hold on to that. Write it down someplace in your Bible. Because actually, this is the message of, of the Gospels. This is the message of Jesus. 
we struggle to interpret the stories of our life, but really, we're no better with the Bible, okay? We are no better at interpreting the Bible than we are interpreting the stories of our life. We read everything through that same set of lenses, the coverings over our eyes that lead us to interpret things in particular ways. We interpret our lives and the Bible in ways that it was never meant to be interpreted. And it started in the very beginning. I am preaching today, and so guess what I have to do? I have to go back to Genesis, right? I have to go back to Genesis because we know that Adam and Eve lived in a garden and everything was good and beautiful, but then they were, they were tempted, right? They were tempted to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, they wanted to know and be able to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong in life. And they were also tempted by saying that when you know this, you will be like God. The ultimate temptation to be like God, to determine our own way. So Adam and Eve, they eat from this fruit, and suddenly they had these lenses over their eyes where everything that they saw they had to judge. They looked at each other. They judged one another in their nakedness. They looked at themselves. They judged themselves in their nakedness. And it says, they looked and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed and so they hid. This is what we do, right? This is, you don't need to, like you can read Genesis 1 through 4. That is everything you need to know about how humans work. It's all right there. We see our nakedness and our shame. We look through these broken lenses and we hide. They hid and they judged their own nakedness. And we have been hiding and judging and shaming ourselves ever since as a human race. Some of us grew up in homes that taught us to work for perfection, right? Nothing short of perfection was okay. So you always had to get the A's, all straight A's. If you got a B, well, why isn't it an A, right? You've been in those kind of situations, been around people like that where perfection, nothing short of perfection is okay. You're driven to perform. You live under a constant pressure to do better. You live with critique, with judgment, with anger and a pointing finger. And what does that do? Because none of us can ever be perfect. What we have to do is hide, right? We hide. We don't show a report card to our parents. When I was in fourth grade, I got a math test that got an F on it. Now, you see how I said that? The math test had an F on it. It had nothing to do with me. But the math test had an F on it, and I said, I can't bring this to my parents. And so I waited until everybody went out to recess, and then the teacher went out, and I snuck over to his desk, and I got his red pen, and I changed that F to an A, which is surprisingly easy to do because it's already got three of the lines, and I just kind of squiggle it over and rounded it over, and I brought it home, and I hid it in my bag. I didn't want to give it to my parents because I realized that that even though there's an A on the top of it, you can see that clearly there was no right answers on the page. That's what we do, right? We hide, we cover, we we, we work, we hustle to try to, to change the story a little bit. Some of us, though, grew up in our homes where they parents, they, that's what they grew up under. And so now in our home, we're not going to do that to you. So we're going to take the pressure off. And we're going to tell you, all you got to do is do your best. Anybody heard this? Yes? You can raise hands here. It's like, it gets good for your blood circulation. Did anybody here do your best? Yes? Parents, here's the, here's the terrible question. Have any of you told your children this? Yes. Yes, we have. The problem is that this is just masking perfection because what we want is we want you to do your best. 
always and in everything. And you know what? It's just not reasonable. None of us here can do our best all the time and in everything because we just don't have the capacity. We're not strong enough. We don't have the, we don't have the mental capacity to give our best at every subject every time. We don't have the emotional or physical energy to push through and give our best every time. What this is is soft perfectionism. I have probably never done it to my kids, and I've probably never done it to the people I've pastored. I'm sorry. So Jesus enters this story, this story of shame, critique, judgment, hiding, and guilt, He enters the story that the Bible has been teaching for the first four centuries or so of of life since Adam and Eve. And Jesus comes in and he tells us a completely different story. So completely different that I have read this story for years and I've interpreted it through those broken lenses and not understood what Jesus was really saying. So Luke 13, open your Bibles, open your phones, open your, I don't know, maybe you have Luke memorized, so if you do, mentally open it to Luke 13. Luke 13, 6 through 9. Jesus is going to teach us a new way to read our stories, and it's here in the Bible. So this is, this is God. This is, you know, Jesus is God, and Jesus is speaking it, but it's also been recorded, so it's double the Word of God for us today. Luke 13, three verses, six through nine. The context. Jesus has been talking to the crowds. He's got a whole bunch of people around him. They're asking him questions. And as happens at really good junior high overnighters, it automatically goes to the the subject of the final judgment. When is God going to come back and wipe everybody out and save the righteous? When is God going to take away all of the unrighteous and throw them into the fiery furnace and and save us? You know, that always happens at middle school overnighters. Somewhere about 3 a.m. We have to talk about it. It happens, right? There's no middle schoolers in here, so... You've all been there. Oh, there's one. My daughter. She's in the very, very back, though, so I didn't see you. So middle school overnighters, we talk about this judgment. And that's what comes up. So it makes me think maybe there's a bunch of middle schoolers talking to Jesus here. And they start asking, when is the judgment coming? When is God returning? When will the final judgment be? How can we know when it's coming? Well, what will it be like? And they bring up, then they bring up like some people that have been in their mind judged. That there was this group of Galileans of people that live in the same region that Jesus grew up in. And they were captured by the Romans and then they were executed and their blood was then mixed in with the sacrifices in the Jewish temple. And it was meant to like defile the Jewish temple. It was meant to punish the Jewish people and it was meant to punish these particular Jewish people who had risen up against the Roman governor. And so in the eyes of these men and women who were talking to Jesus, these people had been judged. They'd been judged by God, and so it was not just was the, the, the temple defiled, but they were defiled because they'd been killed in such a manner and their blood was mixed, mixed with the sacrifices. They must have been really, really bad sinners for something like that to happen because that's how God judges. And Jesus says in, in the beginning of 13, you think you're better than those people? You think you're better than those guys that were executed? What about the guys that were working in the construction project and the engineer was lazy and he misengineered the building and they're out there working and the whole building collapses on them and it kills them? What about those guys? How were they judged? 
Do you think you're any better than them? If you think you're better than them, then you better repent. Because unless you repent, then you're going to die just like they did. He challenges their view of judgment. And then he tells this story. Luke 13, 6. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it, and he found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. See, the crowds have been reading this, their lives and their stories, stories of other people through these, this, these lenses of God's anger and wrath and judgment, through guilt and shame and critique. And since they had such bad things happen to them, they must be horrible sinners. God sees reality and judges it with death. But then Jesus tells a story that seems to tell something kind of opposite here. It's a shocking story. It takes us into a garden again, just like Adam and Eve's garden. It takes us to a tree, very similar to Adam and Eve's tree. It brings us back to this creation story, but instead of the tree being something we take from, we become the tree. It's a tree that isn't producing any fruit. The tree is looking at its life. The, the owner of the property is looking at the tree, and everybody agrees there is no figs on the fig tree. It is not producing and so the owner of the fig tree decides, hey, guess what? I think that this thing is a waste of space. It is a waste of time. Why are we watering it? Why are we feeding it? Why do we let it use up our soil and all of these resources? Why do we allow it to be here in the orchard amongst all these other trees if it isn't producing? I've been waiting for three years. When this thing came in, was planted, we said three years, it's gonna produce fruit. It's gonna be a good tree. It looks good, but still nothing. So let's cut it down and get rid of it. And the gardener replies, sir, let's give it some time. Let me do some work on it. Let me dig around in the roots. Let me fertilize it. Let me feed it and care for it for a year. And then we'll see. We'll see what happens. As a former arborist, I was actually really surprised at the agricultural knowledge that Jesus had in telling this story. I mean, these are the things that I would walk into somebody like you, if you had an apple tree and it wasn't producing well, or the fruit was weak and small, what would I do? I'd look at the tree, I'd inspect the tree, and I'd say, hey, you know what we need to do? is We need to dig around in the roots. We need to find out if there's something going on beneath the soil because almost all the problems in trees nowadays, it's in the soil, it's in the roots, it's not in the top. Let's dig around in there and figure out what's going on. Let's give it some fertilizer. Let's put some stuff on there that helps it thrive and then see what happens before we cut it down. It was amazing to me when Jesus says the thing I would do. Now we look at this and we say, okay, well, who are the characters here? God must be the landowner. This must be God. And Jesus must be the gardener. But what we're doing when we do this, we're splitting Jesus and God apart in a way that's not actually very natural. Because Jesus and God are the same being. So, Jesus and God are the gardener. Jesus and God are the ones that are stepping in the midst of this story. I think that the landowner is you and me. I think the landowner is, is those of us who look at our own lives 
or look at the lives of our neighbor and say, huh, you're not producing much fruit. You're not, you're not doing so hot. Or you look at yourself in the mirror after you go skiing and you say, eh, eh. You look at yourself after you've prayed and you're like, eh. You look at yourself and like, oh, you know, other people are more religious than me. Other people are more close to God. Other people worship better than me. Other people, all of these things, other people are better than me. We, we see this about ourselves. We are the landowners judging the fruit on the tree. And this story has God stepping into the middle of it. As Jesus saying that God is not like that. God is like this. He is like a gardener who steps in and says, hold on a minute. Before you go cutting each other down, before you go destroying one another, before you judge yourself as unworthy and unbroken, let me come in here and tell you a little bit of a different story. Jesus says, let's see if we can't get it to do what it was made to do. Let's see if by a little bit of work, digging around in the roots, and a little bit of fertilizer, that this tree, that you, your life, wouldn't begin to produce fruit. And then he prescribes kind of a pathway. And these are the things, you know, and I, as I talk about churches that heal, these are the things that we need in our lives, individually, and in us as a community, in order to be a church that heals. These things that Jesus prescribes. So what are these elements? There's like a whole bunch of them, and I'm going to kind of quickly go through them. Grace and time, truth, sorry, grace and truth together. Time, vulnerability, and fertilizer. This is what Jesus prescribes in this situation. Now, churches, we like the word truth, right? Especially in this culture where everybody says, well, I've got a truth, and you've got a truth, and your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and everybody's going, you know what, if there isn't one truth, then none of the truths are true because they conflict with each other. So nothing is true. And we get into this whole argument about what is truth, and we get, we get really angry about it. This cord is going to trip me. That is a truth. This is big. Look at this. It's I think John made a loop. It's a snare. Oh, he's over there. Is this a snare, John? Is this what this is? Okay. Next thing I'm with my feet up in the air. Truth. Turn around too much. Is that what it is? So the church is good at truth. We like truth. We like to point the finger of truth by saying you're wrong, right? You're wrong, and this is right. And it comes, truth comes a lot of judgment and a lot of anger very much in this culture. And I want you to notice in this story, Jesus doesn't deny the truth of what's going on in the tree's life. Notice that? The gardener doesn't say, oh, no, 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 you don't need to cut this down. There was a fig there last week. I saw it. Promise. Like eight of them. They were delicious. I'm sorry you didn't get one. He doesn't cover over it. He, he doesn't like, oh, there's, you just can't see it, but in the top, there's some buds up there, and I'm, I promise you're going to have fruit before you even know it. There's going to be figs coming out your ears. He doesn't, he doesn't cover it. He doesn't promise something that isn't true. He just looks at it, and he says, yeah, you're right. This tree does not produce fruit. You look at Adam and Eve. God comes in and he says, truth, you ate from the tree that I told you not to, didn't you? Yes, we did. Your life, God comes to you and he says, are you producing fruit? Mm, maybe not. He doesn't, doesn't equivocate. He says it's, it is or it isn't. 
We look at it, we're not measuring up. We're exhausted, we're stuck, we're broken. It's true. It's who we are. The truth is you are not perfect because you are not God. You're not. The story of Adam and Eve, again, if you eat from this tree, you will be like God. And so we've been trying ever since. And that's why we don't measure up. We are not God. Stop trying to be. Just be the tree that you are. Grace cannot be applied to what is unseen. Grace cannot be applied to what is being pretended. We pretend to be something that we're not. Grace can't be applied to that because it's not reality. God is real. God is reality. And he deals with truth. And to the degree in which we are truthful with God, which is, is the degree to which we can receive his grace, which is the other side of this. Jesus doesn't just doesn't deny the judgment of the landowner at all, but he suggests a different path, and that's a path of grace. Jesus steps in between the judge and the object of his judgment, which means he steps in between us and how we view our lives. And he says, no, 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 no. Don't go cutting this thing down yet. Don't go cutting yourself down yet. Don't go throwing yourself away yet. Don't go writing yourself off yet. Let's just see. Let's just see what might happen. Let's just see, because this tree, I think, is worth saving. This tree, I think, is worth healing. Jesus says, yes, the tree hasn't produced fruit, but let's hold off a while. Let's hold judgment, and let's just see what happens with a little bit of work, a little bit of love, a little bit of fertilizer. See what happens to your life. That's grace. And then that grace that he gives us actually is this, this thing that I really struggle with, which is time. If I look over my life, I'd say that, uh, I, I said this to Heidi the other day, and uh, let me put a caveat with this. This is new information to me. This is new information that I am wrestling with right now. If I look over my life, I would say one of the sins that I have struggled with most is impatience. You know, you know you'd say, like, well, you're a nice guy. You're not all that impatient. And it's true in some ways. But when I look at my life, I say, hey, you know what? By now at 40, what am I, 48 in a few days short of 49, I should be different. I should be, I should be the pastor of something really amazing. I should have all these skills. I should have, you know, all of these things that I should have be, all the fruit I should be producing, how good I should be at praying and reading my Bible. And I see that I struggle to do these things and I get impatient and angry with myself. And I point a finger and I hear the voice of judgment saying, oh, you're not as good as everybody thinks you are. Why are you still struggling with this or that? You guys ever felt that? Why am I still struggling with this or that? The voice of judgment points the finger at your weakness and you get impatient with it. But the truth is we are time-bound creatures. We're not God who stands out of time. We are time-bound creatures. And God says you need time to change, to grow, to mature, and to produce fruit. The truth is, as time-bound creatures, we need time to allow God to work in us. The gardener knows this. Let's give it some time. He says, let's give it a year. But really, the Greek there is, let's give it another season. Let's give it just a, a season of growing. Let's give it some space. Let's not rush it. 
He doesn't mean necessarily a literal year. It's not a hard time. And in fact, I would say that, you know, in while we look at this, we go, okay, it was one more year. And that's a pretty hard time frame, right? But the very next story in this, Jesus illustrates what he means. This woman walks in who is hunched over and is broken and says she has a spiritual and a physical malady going on in her body and has had it for 18 years. And Jesus heals her. He says it's not about the time, but it's about giving the time. It's about giving time and space. So the question here is, how patient are you with yourself? How patient are you with your children? How patient are you with your pastor? How patient are you with your next door neighbor? How patient are you with your enemies? How patient are you with those you struggle with? God is exceedingly patient with you, okay? The fact that you're all sitting here proves the point, right? Because Jesus could come back anytime. Jesus could, God could be like, all right, that's it, done, fed up with all of this mess. I'm fed up with the wars. I'm fed up with the strife. I'm fed up with the, the famines. I'm fed up with uh, the injustice of this world. But instead, he looks and he says, no, there is still value here. This, these trees, these people, the people in this room are still worth waiting for, still worth waiting for the fruit to come in their lives if they'll allow me to give them the time and to work with them. God is exceedingly patient with you, and thank God he's exceedingly patient with me even when I'm not patient with myself. So be exceedingly patient with yourself. Take it easy. It's not a rush. It's not a race to perfection. It's a walk toward what God has for you. Next takes vulnerability. So we, we, we have truth and grace, right? We admit that what's what, and we give grace, and that grace comes in the form of time. We are giving people time to grow and to heal and to change. But then it also takes vulnerability on behalf of the trees. The tree has to be vulnerable. They have to be willing to give access to the gardener who wants to dig around in its roots. Now, as an arborist, I know the tree has very little agency. That means power to do anything about what's done to it. I walk up to an apple tree with a set of pruners and a chainsaw. The tree can't run away, right? The tree can't hide. It can't be like cover the roots, cover, you know, it's crossing and binding limbs. I just go and I do what needs to be done. But we're a little bit different than that. We have choice. We have the ability to give access to the roots of our life to God and to other people or to hide. Jesus is saying, I want to come in and I want to dig around the roots. I want to find out where this, the illness is. I want to find out where the sickness is. I want to find out where you've been rooted in, in beliefs about yourself that have kept you bound up. I want to root around in the things that lead, lead you to addiction. I want to root around in these areas of your life that you are hiding, that you are ashamed of, that you have judged, and I want to bring healing to them. Jesus is really saying, I want you to let me love you. That's all Jesus has ever wanted to do. So many people outside of the church see Jesus as a judge, see Jesus as unkind, or they like Jesus, but they see God as this ultimate thumb ready to squash. But all God has ever, ever wanted to do from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation is to love you, to love me, to set us free. 
and we struggle to let it happen because we see our brokenness and we are ashamed. Oh, I got this. I can produce all of my produce fruit all on my own. You just watch. I'm just gonna squeeze a little harder. I'm just gonna push a little harder. I'm just gonna try a little more. I'm gonna hustle a little harder. Or I'm busy just hiding. I'm covering it with things that you can't see or making it so that it's camouflaged and it looks better than it is. If God doesn't see it, then it's gonna be okay. But the truth is God sees. God knows. But he doesn't judge. He wants to love you. He wants you to let him in. Now, that does not mean he's not going to make demands on your life. It doesn't mean that he's not going to ask you to give up porn or to give up anger or to, to stop fighting, stop controlling your life, to stop shopping to excess or to over-exercise. You know, all of the habits that destroy you, that tear you down, that divide you from other people does not mean that God is not going to ask you to give up some of those things. It just means that he wants to, you to give up being God and let God love you. Which is what I say every week, right? Jesus loves you and so do we. Jesus loves you and so do we. Yeah, it's so hard to accept. But that's what God wants. So the challenge of vulnerability is to stop trying for perfection or measuring up or, or condemning yourself because you don't measure up and just let God love you. Right where you're at. Just who you are. And then lastly, fertilize. Before we went to Costa Rica, I had to take some time to learn how to prune cocoa trees because I learned how to prune apple trees and pear trees. And basically, that's it because that's all we have here in the Northwest. But in Costa Rica, they have cocoa trees and orange trees, and I'd never seen either of them. And I had to study and figure out, how do you prune one of these things so that it produces good fruit? And one of the things that I was surprised by is that cocoa trees need a lot of fertilizer. And the best way to get fertilizer is to prune the tree and to leave the branches laying where they're at, where everybody can see them, because in the tropics, everything com composts really, really fast. It turns into the nutrients that the tree needs. So that's what we did. We cut it down and left it there. It becomes compost. Jesus uses the word manure. Now, manure is a really nice, clean word that you can probably think of other words to describe manure. So let's all pick our favorite word for manure in our minds. I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud. On the count of three, say it out. No, kidding. Uh, you got it? You got the word, your favorite word? Like I'll use the word crap because that's pretty much what we're talking about here. The crap that gets pruned out of our lives becomes the fertilizer for the soil. That's what God does in us. Those places of judgment and of shame, all the places where we're weak and we're broken and we give up. God wants to work in there. He wants to prune it and heal it and put that stuff on the ground to be fertilizer for all to see and it becomes the thing that produces fruit in your life. It's one of the greatest miracles in all of agriculture, how crap turns into food. And God does the same thing because God doesn't waste anything. As we allow him to work in the roots of our life, all that is broken, all that is messed up, gets turned into fertilizer, and it grows us into mature, healthy, whole human beings for the glory of God. That's the beauty of this story. So to end this sermon, uh, for some time now, um, 
people in church circles have talked about the church as a hospital. And kind of what probably what pops in your head when I say churches that heal. Right? Well, it's like a hospital. But sometimes in hospitals, there are diseases that can only get spread in hospitals, like MRSA. Right? It's a respiratory disease, and the only time you get it is when you're in the hospital. There's infections that you can get when you're only in the hospital. And I'm afraid that as a pastor, I may have been inadvertently transmitting a disease around shame. Just by each week saying, hey, what's God calling you to do this week? Maybe you need to step up and do just a little bit more. You need to try a little harder. Read, read a little more Bible. Pray a little longer. Worship a little louder. Why aren't you guys worshiping? Can you clap this week? Come on, help me out. You know, and I just want you guys to participate in all of the life of God. And yet I know that in doing that, I can communicate to you that I am impatient with you and that you're not good enough yet. That you're not there yet. You haven't arrived at the place that I want you to be yet or that God wants you to be yet. Do more, be involved more, serve more. I mean, our job as pastors, we're supposed to be fostering a dynamic, growing community. And we're like, well, why aren't you growing? Why are, you know? And then we push and force and fight, and we're passing on a disease, which we're living out in our own lives. And impatience to get quickly to the fruit that God has destined to grow in you over the time of your life. So I'm asking you to forgive me in that. That is a part of my closing. And to just let God love you. Just let God love you. I hope that Pullman Foursquare will be someplace different than a place that is constantly striving and working and hustling to be better, to be more spiritual, to be more Holy Spirit-filled. I want to be a person of grace and truth, not judgment. And I maybe want to co-pastor a church of people that are people of grace and truth and not judgment. I want to be a person who is patient, patient with himself, patient with his family, patient with his work life, patient with his neighbors, allowing God to do what God wants to do, not rushing the work of God or faking it when I haven't got there yet. And maybe, maybe, maybe if God is so good and gracious to me, I could co-lead a community of people that are the same way, patient with each other, patient with each other's faults and weaknesses giving each other the space and time that God needs to do the work that he wants to do. I want to be a person who's vulnerable with God and with other people. I want to give access to the roots of my life to trusted people. Let the Holy Spirit root around in there and point out things and cut things that need to be cut. And maybe, again, if God is gracious enough, I want to co-lead a community of people who are vulnerable with each other as well that are exploring the roots of their life through EHS and through EHR and through Rooted and through Churches That Heal and any opportunity we have for visiting psychologists and counselors and pastoral counselors, whatever method we need to do to be open and to dig around in the roots of our lives. I want to be a community of people that do that. And I want God to turn my mess into glory, to use the broken parts of my story and turn them into hopeful, a hopeful and healed story. And maybe, just maybe, I could co-lead a community of people with you who tell a different story to themselves when they see the video of themselves skiing, when they take a test 
and it isn't quite what they hoped. When they are short with their children, when they are short with their spouse, and they make a mistake and they fail and they fall down, maybe we could be a people who allow God to use these things and to turn it into glory and make a new story of how God has taken the things that were meant to destroy you and to turn them into good. A story that just says, God loves me, just as I am right here. So my question for you in closing is this. Which area of these, these five kind of prescription things that Jesus gave us, where do you most struggle? Is it grace and truth? Do you struggle to be truthful about who you are? Do you struggle to give other people grace when they're truthful about who they are? Do you struggle with time, being patient with yourself, being patient with other people, allowing them to be in process? Do you struggle with vulnerability, allowing God and other people, not just God, like I give Jesus access to my roots all the time. You need human beings to have access to your roots too. You need, you need human beings to talk to, to wrestle with this stuff. Do you struggle with vulnerability in opening up your life to trusted people to help you grow and mature? Or is it fertilizer? You're too ashamed of your story to allow it to be turned into glory. Where do you most struggle? Let's give it a moment. Father, I pray that we would be a church that heals, which means that we are a church of people who are in the process of being healed. God, I thank you that you are a God of grace and a God who gives time, who has waited a long time to come back because you are giving us the time that we need. God, I pray that you would continue to work in the lives of each person here and in myself to be truthful about their lives, to receive your grace, to give it time and patience, to be vulnerable with you and with one another, and God, to receive the fertilizer that you want to bring into our lives so that we can produce fruit, to do what we're made to do, producing good things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control out in this world. But above all, I pray that you would let us take it easy and allow you to love us just for who we are. Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to end with saying what I always say. But we're also going to play the song that we played a little earlier. And if you just want to sit and listen for a minute, I hope that this week you'll just take and that, that this little ditty will be stuck in your brain. Uh, what do they call that? I can't remember what it's called. It's just stuck in there. And it just go through. Take it easy. God already loves you completely. That's, that's what you need to hear, okay? So know this. Jesus actually, truly, really does. Despite what you think, despite what you think of yourself, despite what others have said about you, Jesus loves you. And to the best of my ability, <laughs> to the best of my patience, to the best of my vulnerability and everything that God is doing in me, I love you too. And Heidi loves you too, to the same degree. 
Hers is probably a little bit more than mine. And we love you very, very much, and we want God's best for you. So come back next week to receive that. All right? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's listen to the song, and then you can go away. Easy, easy. God already loves you completely. Take it easy, easy. Rest in the shade of his wings. Lay down your burdens and rest for a while. The shepherd who seeks you is gentle and kind. There's nothing to pay for and nothing to earn. Nothing you have to become. Take it easy, easy. God already loves you completely. Take it easy, easy. Rest in the shade of his wings. Lay down the scales where you are empty, just leave them behind. The distance between his two hands are enough to tell you the depths of his love. Take it easy, easy. God already loves you completely. Take it Thank you.